You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? You know you do. And that is The Jordan Harbinger Show, a top-notch podcast named Best of Apple in 2018, and has only gotten better. Jordan goes deep with fascinating people, from authors and scientists to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. During his discussions, Jordan pulls out tactical bits of wisdom for you to use to become a more informed, critical thinker. You'll learn and have a good time. He's very easy to listen to. My two recent favorites are Episode 972, Mustafa Suleiman, The Coming Wave of Artificial Intelligence, and Episode 843, Ellie Honig, How the Rich Get Away with Crime. You can't go wrong adding The Jordan Harbinger Show to your rotation. It's incredibly interesting. There's never a dull show. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast. Episode 343, interview with Ambassador David McCain about his book, Watching Darkness Fall, FDR, his ambassadors, and the rise of Adolf Hitler. Former ambassador to Luxembourg, and before that, the director of policy planning at the U.S. Department of State, Ambassador McCain is currently the senior fellow at the German Marshall Fund of the United States in Washington, D.C., and the author of several books, one being... Tommy the Cork, Washington's ultimate insider from Roosevelt to Reagan. Today, he joins us to talk about how all but one of FDR's ambassadors in Europe misjudged Hitler and his intentions. Ambassador McCain, thank you very much for being with us today. Delighted. Thank you for having me, Ray. Absolutely. So I'm so happy to have you on the show because Obviously, when people hear the subject of World War II, they think about battles and weapons and tactics and all that kind of stuff. But I think what gets lost in the overall story is the storm before the storm, the 1930s, which is mostly what your book is about. And um, what's what I find interesting about this is you and I know it's coming. It's all hindsight. It's all history. And so I think people make certain observations or they just assume things. This was, was how it was supposed to work out. And so it did. But that's not exactly how history works. So what I enjoyed about your book is here's FDR with his ambassadors, and they have to live this out day by day. They don't know it's coming. They're doing the best they can with the information that they have. And speaking of that information, all FDR knows is what his ambassadors and other eyes and ears on the ground are telling him. But I, I've got to think that when he goes into the White House after winning in 19, uh, for 1933, he's probably assuming that 
it's pretty much going to be domestic policies, foreign policy won't matter at all. And that's probably his and everyone else's assumption as it goes into the White House. No, absolutely. I mean, we have to remember that this is a very, very different time in our history. You know, the, the means of communication mm-hmm. um, at the time um, and with, with the way Roosevelt campaigned, he campaigned on the back of a train criss- crisscrossing the country. And radio um, was uh, really the most effective means of communication. Uh, television was in its infancy. Um, he um, this was the, this was pre-internet, and so uh, you know he is uh, um, very definitely campaigning at a time. Um, also, you have to remember that this is the the height of the of the of the depression in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got a. Uh, Massive unemployment. Twenty-five percent of the people don't have a job. Uh, GDP is a um, has sunk to its all-time low for, um, during the during the uh, uh, in the century, and the banks are closing every day. So it's a very very different time. And I think with the point that you make, which I think is really really important, mm-hmm. is that while we know the outcome, um, this is really the story of of the 1930s and how we reached the Second World War. And uh, there have been a lot of books about um, how Roosevelt conducted the war, but the time leading up to World War II is really the focus of this book. And, uh, and as you said, um, his ambassadors at the time were his eyes and ears. I completely agree with everything you said, and I think you've anticipated my next question. Was it those very issues, and like you said, the lead up to the war, how America got in the war, and I'm guessing, is that why you decided to write this book? Yeah, there are a couple of a couple of things. You know, I was the ambassador to Luxembourg um, in 2016 and early 2017, and um, so they're really sort of a it's sort of a confluence, I guess, of of of, of things that led me to to write it. Um, one was I'd written a book um, in uh, 2000 and uh, published, I guess, in 2004 on Tommy Corcoran, who was one of Roosevelt's um, leading domestic advisors, and I'm a huge fan of Roosevelt. I'll say that mm-hmm. up front. I think he was one of our greatest presidents, and I've always been very interested in him. Sure. And as an ambassador, you know, to Luxembourg, Luxembourg was actually invaded twice by the Nazis. It has the um, second, most people don't know this, the second largest U.S. military cemetery in Europe. Wow. And I did a number of events there on Memorial Day and Veterans Day, obviously, and at other times as well. And it's a very moving experience when you're um, walking uh, among those uh, gravestones of fallen heroes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I remember thinking to myself, you know, how did we sort of reach that point? I mean, obviously, um, um, we were in many ways uh, with Pearl Harbor forced into war. But the events leading up to um, 1941 and our entrance into war was, was, was something that I hadn't fully understood. And I think sort of the combination of being an ambassador, admiring Roosevelt, and wanting to know more about how we actually got into this war in, um, in, the, in 1941 um, really motivated me to, to write the book. Okay. Well, since you brought up Luxembourg, I have to ask, is it as lovely as it sounds? Because I've seen pictures, it's on my bucket list, but haven't quite made it there yet. Luxembourg is a really special country. It's obviously very, very small. Um, it's, it's, it's sort of got a fairy tale quality to it. But it's a fascinating place. You know, it was a, it, it's, it's an original member of NATO, an original member of the European Union. And so um, while it's a country of only a half a million people, mm. they actually, as they say, they punch above their weight and they have a huge uh, 
they have a huge interest in the future of Europe. So it was just a, it was not only a very enjoyable time, it was just a fascinating experience. Uh, it, yeah, and being in, in sent, literally uh, in the middle of the country um, between two, uh, several other major powers. Uh, yeah, I would imagine that their their politics and their international politics are, are quite complicated. But uh, again, one day I hope to get there because it, from what I've seen on the internet, it looks absolutely beautiful. So let's yeah. let's jump into this. So it's 1933, and FDR again is probably thinking with 99% of his brain about domestic policies, what he's going to be able to do to help the uh, people as he goes into the to the uh, White House. But again, what we know is that that's only going to be the first act of what is going to happen during his uh, four terms, because darker clouds are coming over um, Europe in the form of fascism. No, absolutely. Um, You know, it's interesting when Roosevelt is inaugurated, um, there is, uh, it's obviously, um, actually, when he wins the presidency, it's splashed Mm -hmm. across the, 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 uh, the front pages. And then when he's inaugurated, it's, you know, he's our 30, um, 32nd president. But at the same time, there is a story about Adolf Hitler um, um, vying for power in Germany on the very same New York Times front page that day. And so uh, Roosevelt was somebody who, while he was, as you said accurately, completely focused on um, events at home, he had a, uh, you know, he had a worldview. He'd been the assistant secretary of the Navy. He'd traveled to Europe as a as a child with his parents on numerous occasions, and so he um, he had some sense that there were um, other forces out there. Um, he knew that international trade was important and would be important to actually getting the United States out of its economic doldrums. And so that uh, while he focused largely on domestic policy, and particularly early in, in those early years, he always had an eye out for what was happening abroad, and he was very, very interested in what was happening abroad. And so that's why, you know, he he uh, felt it very important to have a personal relationship um, with the ambassadors that he sent to these key European capitals. Absolutely, and and I'm guessing here, but I'm assuming that in, in a way, the the most international. That he was thinking as far as finances is probably all the money that is owed to the United States from the Great War. It's like we could really use that money now, but there, that's I'm guessing that's one of the issues that he's thinking on the on the international front. Absolutely, you're right about that. I mean, it's uh, the issue of reparations was first and foremost in his mind. You know, he was looking for um, funds anywhere he could find them at the time. I mean, as I as I said earlier. You know, the financial institutions in the United States were closing right and left, and uh, unemployment was at an all-time high, and uh, the United States was in trouble. And so that if he could uh, um, entice uh, some of our our European counterparts to um, pay some of the reparations that they owed the United States, um, that was was very much a priority for him. And, of course, they're in the same boat that we are uh, struggling economically. So the meat of your book, the heart of your book, revolves around four ambassadors that obviously are going to be in Europe that FDR selects. And you're right, he's hoping to have a relationship with them, but he's also hoping that they're good at their job or they can give him good intelligence. Could you introduce us to these four main ambassadors? Yeah, sure. They're a a varied group. Um, there's a ambassador William Dodd, who is the ambassador to uh, to Germany, and actually Roosevelt had a very difficult time filling that position. He asked uh, three or four other um, prominent 
um, American statesman to take the job of ambassador to Germany. Nobody wanted it at the time. And so we settled on uh, William Dodd, who was a um, he was head of the history department at the University of Chicago. He was not terribly well known, but he'd lived in Germany. He was friends with uh, a member of Roosevelt's cabinet. Uh, Roosevelt interviewed him and liked him and decided that he was um, he would be, you know, a fine um, ambassador. Mm -hmm. Uh, but he was not, uh, he did not have a diplomatic background. And he was the ambassador there from 1933 to 1937. And we can talk a little bit more about him um, as we go along. The ambassador to Italy was somebody that Roosevelt did know quite well. He had had an office down the hall from uh, Roosevelt during the Wilson administration. His name was Breckenridge Long. He was very much, um, he's been described as Confederate aristocracy. <laughs> his uh, his uh, great grandfather had been the um, Vice President John Breckinridge to um, President Buchanan wow. from Kentucky. Um, Breckinridge was from Kentucky. And um, Breckinridge Long had uh, been uh, uh, a candidate actually twice for the U.S. Senate in Missouri and had lost, but he had been a, a stalwart on the Roosevelt campaign in 1932 and, and at the convention. And so he was awarded um, the, uh, the very um, plum post of ambassador to Italy. Um, the third ambassador who had two positions during the Roosevelt years that I talk about is William Bullitt. First, he was our first ambassador of the Soviet Union from 1933 to 1936, early 1936. And then late in 1936, he assumed um, uh, the post of ambassador to France, a very, very important um, post as well, and obviously um, critical during those the, the, the latter years of the 1930s. And he's an extraordinarily charismatic, interesting fellow. He'd negotiated with uh, Lenin at the age of 28 on behalf of the Rose, on the ha behalf of the Wilson administration. Um, he um, was a rather a flamboyant individual. Uh, he was very popular um, uh, with uh, with with, ev with everyone. He had a he was had a lot of charisma. Um, he'd written a book that um, a novel in uh, 1926 that had actually outs outsold the great Gatsby. Um, and we can talk a little bit more about him as well, but a very, very interesting man. And then finally, the last ambassador who's quite well known, I think, to the American public is uh, Joseph Kennedy. Mm -hmm. And um, Kennedy was a big supporter of Roosevelt in 1932. And Roosevelt took the unusual step of making him the um, chairman of the the first chairman of the Securities and Exchange Administration, and was Kennedy was responsible for in many ways for writing the ship, um, the financial ship, and uh, and certainly our um, our uh, financial structures uh, in Washington D.C. Um, he oversaw the Securities and Exchange Commission, and by all accounts, did an excellent job. He became ambassador in 1938, and he was not. Uh, as well suited to that job as uh, as he might have been. Right. Right. <laughs> so I find it interesting, and, and this still happens today, it's nothing new, but yeah, certain people can be given positions because of either help they've given or help they might give in the future. I mean, that's just kind of the nature of uh, how governments work. But having said that, these, these gentlemen do come in, especially Dodd, they do come in with a different worldview, different levels of skills um, and experience. And so, but again, as long as they can get FDR some information that's coming from, you know, keeping their ear to the ground, FDR should be able to keep an eye on what's going on and to the best of his ability, you know, react accordingly. 
No, that's absolutely right. I mean, you know, Dodd was um, the thing he was sort of most concerned about was was could he? Have, he was not a wealthy man. The other three ambassadors I referred to earlier were were all quite wealthy, um, and from you know sort of prominent families. Um, Breck, uh, uh, William Dodd was a rather rather simple fellow. Um, grew up in North Carolina. Very very smart individual. Um, as I say, head of the history department, University of Chicago, but didn't have really any idea what he was getting into. He he'd lived in in Germany for a year as a student, spoke German pretty well, but um, had had no idea what was going to be involved here. And you know, when he arrived in Germany, he um, his sort of initial um, view was that. Um, to wait and see what would happen with the the German government, he didn't um, initially. Um, have any preconceived notions about Hitler. But pretty quickly, he um, discovered that um, this was a, um, a brutal um, um, part of the German society, the, the, uh, the Nazi party. And he was there as the Nazis um, gained increasingly um, a, a stranglehold over the, not only over the government, but over German society. Right. And it distressed him greatly. Yeah, he's going to see this literally unfold before him. He's going to tell FDR everything that he can, but obviously FDR can only do so much being the president of a different country. Correct me if I'm wrong. Did Dodd speak German? Yeah, he spoke. He spoke German. I, you know, I think reasonably mm-hmm. well. I don't think I don't think he was fluent, but he spoke German. Uh, I mean, he carried on his um, meetings with German officials in in German, so he certainly had. Better than conversational German. Gotcha. Okay, yeah, because that will come important. That will become important later when he's actually sitting with Hitler more than once, and he's kind of trying to read the man. Because if you can understand their native language, that that really helps. Before we go on, I have to tell you that I've always been fascinated about William Bullitt ever since I've read about him. You're right; he was absolutely flamboyant. Would I have accepted a party invitation from him? Absolutely, because you knew it was going to be great. But the one part that I don't think I appreciated until I read your book, in fact, I was thinking about writing a book about William Bullitt, but because of you, I don't have to now. Um, he, He was focused on himself. He did play the game and he did want to advance. And at, at the end of the day, you've got to, if, if you're his boss and you love talking to him, you do have to keep that in mind that he is probably trying to get closer to a goal that pretty much has to do with just about him. He's a very, uh, a very interesting, capable person. Mm-hmm. You know, he's, um, he's somebody again, um, who I think, uh, when he entered a room, um, you know, people were sort of naturally um, attracted to him uh, because he uh, he um, he had such wide ranging knowledge, and I think he had the potential to be a to be a very very good ambassador. And he made some certainly made some misjudgments along the way. In fact, he told Roosevelt in 1933, Roosevelt had sent him abroad um, even before he was um, in the White House. Mm-hmm to talk to some of the um, European leaders. And um, Bullitt came back and he's, he, he made a, a gross miscalculation about Hitler. He thought Hitler was uh, really a, a flash in the pan, right. that this was somebody who um, um, would not last as a, as, a, as a major political figure in Germany. And of course, he was dead wrong about that. 
But uh, later on, um, as the uh, as the ambassador to France, he gave um, Roosevelt really pretty good advice. He um, he understood at a certain point that there was um, that war was inevitable. He had, he advised Roosevelt to uh, begin arming the United States. That we needed to put a lot more money into a, an American Air Force and into our, into a, a, a well-equipped army, and so that um, he's a he's a he's a very um, complex figure because the other thing I think that you said earlier was absolutely correct. He's he's a wildly ambitious guy, a wildly ambitious guy. You know, he wants to be in Roosevelt. He desperately wants to be in Roosevelt's cabinet. And um, in 1938 and nine, he is consistently writing to Roosevelt um, these very um, sort of saccharine letters, very flattering letters to Roosevelt. And he always ends them by saying, you know, by the way, I would be a wonderful addition to your cabinet. <laughs> so, uh, he's an interesting man. Right. So, so we've got FDR who's now ensconced in the White House. He's going he's gonna to get into his domestic, domestic policies. We've got the ambassadors that, who are chosen at different times for these, these countries. But someone has to run the State Department. And for that, uh, FDR picks Cordell Hall. I was hoping you could tell us about a little bit about the State Department, its larger functions, and about Hall himself. Sure. So the State Department, you know, at the time... Um, First of all, it was housed in what is currently the old executive office building. It was one of three departments in that building. That tells you how Washington has grown. Right. Um, it was a it was a relatively small um, agency at the time, relatively small department. There were there were twenty five hundred support staff and about seven hundred professional diplomats, most of whom had gone to um, uh, Ivy League colleges, right. uh, Harvard, Yale, and Princeton. They were um, Roosevelt often re referred to them as the striped pants boys. And you know, it was interesting. It's very interesting because uh, Roosevelt's such a complicated figure. He, uh, in many ways, he's a um, you know he's from uh, he's very much uh, from a, um, a, a an upper class uh, elite background. But he has a lot of he actually disdains a lot of the people in the State Department because he feels as though, particularly. Um, those who are serving abroad, he feels as though they're, they're on, many of them are on paid vacations, and he's not uh, he's not a fan of the State Department in many ways. And Cordell Hull is a is an interesting man. He's a he's a good senator. He's from Tennessee. He's a very courtly individual, uh, very proper. Um, he wears starched white shirts, and he looks the part of of a statesman. Um, he's an authority on international trade. Uh, again, um, I think uh, emblematic of Roosevelt's view that he wanted somebody who would help to um, restart the American economy. Uh, he did not have a diplomatic background, however, and uh, he was not well-traveled. Um, and he was, um, I think Roosevelt liked him, but, but you know, there's a, uh, there's a, a, a story by a contemporary um, journalist, John Gunther, who um, wrote, at the, wrote about Roosevelt at the time, and he said there must have been a thousand times that Roosevelt had wished his undersecretary, Sumner Wells, who was a very charismatic and, and uh, extremely intelligent man, was running the department and was running the meetings in, in, in um, the State Department meetings with Roosevelt because he found um, Cordell Hall to be somewhat boring, <laughs> frankly. So, um, interesting, interesting man, good yes. man, you know, a solid man. Right. But, but speaking of that... Um, as we're going to see, and you've touched on this already, but as, as we're going to see, FDR 
for the most part, accepts Hull with all his limitations. He's not flamboyant. He's not exciting. He's going to do everything the proper way and the proper time. And, and, and you need that, but that's not exactly the way FDR operates. But there is going to be different levels of closeness that FDR has with his ambassadors and also with people who, let's just call them unofficial ambassadors. And and so that closeness, FDR seems to value very much. I, I guess maybe all leaders do. Someone that you can open up with, someone that you can talk with, and that's going to affect their relationships over these years in the 1930s. Now, that's a, that's a really good point, Ray. Um, you know, again, if you go through sort of through this list of ambassadors um, with with William Dodd, he's never really close to William uh, to William Dodd, the ambassador to Germany. He likes him, he respects him, but they they don't have any sort of a, of a, of a friendship. Um, it's when they, when they have when they have meetings in the White House, it's all business. Right. Um, right. You know, with Breckenridge Long, he's got this sort of political relationship. He respects uh, Long's political acumen. And, you know, he rather likes him. Um, um, in the end, um, Roosevelt's sort of top advisors, including Eleanor, his wife, um, really detest Long. And that, that, has some, that has some influence over the president, to be honest. Um, William Bullitt is, a, you know, an interesting man. Again, we've talked about him, but he, is, uh, he flatters Roosevelt at every turn. He, has a, a, uh, he, has an, a, he actually has a romantic affair with Roosevelt's um, uh, secretary, uh, Missy Lehand, who um, is extremely close to Roosevelt. Roosevelt approves of it, but you know, really, what William Bullitt's trying to do is just to get closer to the boss wow. by having an affair with his secretary. And um, he's this again. He's he, he's got so much charm, um, William Bullitt, but so does Roosevelt, and they get along famously for uh, a number of years. But at a certain point. Mm-hmm. When Roosevelt doesn't think he's getting good advice, and when he thinks, in fact, that maybe um, uh, Bullitt's a little too arrogant, he cuts him loose. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, with 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 Kennedy, uh, Roosevelt has a relationship that uh, it's really based on politics, and we can uh, we can talk about that a little bit more down the road of this interview. But um, they they are political rivals. And so there's a real sort of chess game going on all the time between um, between Ambassador Kennedy and, and and Franklin Roosevelt. That's that's just a fascinating thing to to read about, and must have been fascinating to watch at the time. Hey everyone, Ray here. I've been using Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, and like many of you, I think about my golden years, and I hope they're golden. I have a Roth IRA with Fidelity and another with Merrill, and I have consolidated them into one hub with Yahoo Finance. There, I have access to expert analysis to help me stay atop this ever-changing world. And with Yahoo Finance at my fingertips, I can focus on my goals of paying off my house and getting ready for, you know, me time. And since Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, they know what they're doing. It's the number one finance destination with their independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. So, for comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. 
I have to ask just real quick. I mean, in the vein of it takes one to know one, I've got to imagine that FDR saw through William Bullitt's vivaciousness, whatever the proper term is. But at the same time, I mean, if if you're a great conversationalist, you've got to think that FDR would enjoy that, even if it was in the afternoons over drinks, just kind of getting over the day. But I'm, I'm imagining he'd spotted this guy early on. Yeah, it's it's a little hard to tell mm-hmm. whether how early he spotted him. Um, he, you know, again, I think he felt that um, Bullet was just an enormously capable individual, and and Bullet was. He he was a you know he was a very very um, bright guy and uh, was a was an excellent diplomat. Mm-hmm. I think his counterparts um, always um, respected him, whether he was in Moscow or in in uh, Washington or in Paris. Um, but he, I mean, it's, if when you go and, and it's a little bit tricky because you go back and you, and it's hard to sort of, um, understand exactly the times, but some of the letters that, that Roosevelt, that uh, bullet wrote to Roosevelt, um, you know, how much he missed spending the afternoons with the Roosevelt family and, and, uh, he made him, they always made him feel as though he were part of the family and, He'd write almost these romantic um, uh, missives to the president um, saying, you know, I wish you could be here and um, at my country retreat in Paris, gazing out over the river. It's just so beautiful. I'm sure it was. <laughs> you know, and I think that kind of thing probably Roosevelt did see through, right. to be honest. Uh, and at a certain point, as I say, he grew he grew somewhat tired of, uh, of um, both of um, – Bullets flatter and of his a- arrogance as well. Right, and you just said a sec a couple of seconds ago, and I didn't think about this. Yeah, FDR is is fine with kind of the more superficial stuff that comes through in the information, but as soon as the information is not the quality that he expects, he cuts the guy loose. So I I don't think FDR ever forgot what Bullet was supposed to be doing in in the the two posts that he he was in. So it's the end of 1933. FDR certainly has been busy on the domestic front, but he is keeping up with events in Europe and Asia. And um, again, this is foreign policy. It's not like FDR has control of everything that goes on in the world. Um, But I guess at this point, even he and his ambassadors and through his ambassadors are certainly seeing um, troubling trends as the year of 1933 goes on. Well, absolutely. And by, you know, by 1934, I mean, Hitler is firmly in power. Mm -hmm. There's been a purge within the Nazi party and he's, um, um, Hitler and his cronies have, have, uh, literally murdered their, uh, their rivals. Right. Um, the uh, Austrian um, prime minister has been has been killed, Austrian uh, Dolphus, mm-hmm. uh, by by the Nazis, and um, Hitler is well on the way to the Anschluss, which is the uh, the um, annexation of of Austria. Uh, there have been laws passed in Germany that um, are you know uh, um, very very harsh on uh, on German Jews. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is evidence that the concentration camps have been started. There's also evidence that Germany is beginning to uh, almost immediately to um, remilitarize. It's uh, because at the you know after World War One they were supposed to um, not have an army, and uh, as soon as Hitler's in power, he begins to um, to uh, create his military and to uh, uh, um, make his. Uh, his presence felt around Europe. Right. He's starting to shake his saber. Uh, I think it's one expression. Now, there's one point in your book, 
uh, that I that I enjoyed v- very much. It's March of 1934, and this this is actually around the time, and I wasn't really aware of this, and so I enjoyed learning this from your book. Uh, in New York, there's this, I don't know if you want to call it a public demonstration or whatever, it's called The Case of Civilization Against Hitler. Um, and and they started this in New York, and they do it in other cities as well. So again, the there are some elements in America who are looking at Nazi Germany and go, okay, this is beyond the pale. This is not what's needed at this time. Um, but it was around this time that Ambassador Dodd has his second meeting with Hitler. And as you can imagine, during the first meeting, Hitler probably did 99% of the talking because that's what Hitler, that's what Hitler does. But this is a, a moment where Dodd, maybe he's not as um, like a deer in the headlights as so much, but he's able to talk back engage with Hitler more and actually see kind of maybe the truer side of Hitler, if only a little bit during this second meeting. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. Um, you know, Dodd has been there now for, um, you know, for nearly a year. He's seen a lot of things that he, that he doesn't like. Um, he's referring in his diary, he kept a private diary, which uh, I, I used uh, extensively in the book. Mm-hmm. And he talks about the Nazi leadership. He thinks they're, um, he frankly thinks they're a, a bunch of clowns, but he thinks they're, they're da- he thinks they're very dangerous. Right. And um, um, he goes to, you know, he, he, in his second meeting with Hitler, he raises a number of issues that he had not raised in the first issue. He talks about um, the uh, Nazi treatment of Jews. And he also talks about um, the militarization of the, of the, uh, of the, of the nation. Right. And Hitler goes, you know, semi-berserk during this meeting. Right. I mean, he ra- he raises his voice. He's yelling at um, he's yelling at Dodd. Um, he's furious with him. And you know, I think Dodd is shocked by this. But again, he he understands at this at this time that um, if Hitler is allowed to continue down this path, that it it's going to be um, very dangerous not only for uh, for Germany but potentially for all of Europe. Let me let me ride on that for a second with two ideas. You speak in your book, and I think that's I think this gets lost by um, people uh, in in American society today. But FDR and Hull had an attitude, and I think it was a very established, well accepted attitude about not interfering in European politics. One, you don't want to get bogged down. You certainly don't want to get bogged down if there's another war, that kind of stuff. So it makes sense that the average American on the street is isolationist. But everything you just said just now is getting back to FDR. He's getting worried. And there's a phrase that FDR has in his book, and, I, and I'm paraphrasing, so bear with me. And it's something like, what do you call a leader with no followers? It's yeah. just a guy taking a walk. And that's what FDR is afraid of. It's like, there's this trouble coming, but I can't get the Americans to think about anything other, and I'm not judging them, than their pocketbooks. No, that's exactly that's exactly right. I mean, you know, again, you have to remember that while this is all happening in Europe, um, and we're reading about it, um, you know, seventy years later, mm-hmm. the United States is in the middle of the Great Depression, and uh, again, people are going hungry. It's a desperate time in our country, right. and people do remember the First World War, and they wonder, you know, what was it about? Why did we fight it? And, you know, look at the state that we're in now. Mm-hmm. And so, as you suggest, the American public was overwhelmingly um, isolationist. And that meant that the United States Congress was overwhelmingly isolationist. Right. Uh, they did not want to get involved in uh, in a far off country. And in those days, Europe, uh, 
you know, any of the nations in Europe were far, far away. Again, it's well before the Internet. It's well before um, we were able to turn on a television and see what's happening in Glasgow. Mm -hmm. um, it's uh, this is a very, very different time. And, um, you know, Roosevelt it was a master politician. He understood the, uh, the, um, he had the temperature of, of what was happening, of the people in the United States. And you're, the, I think the quote you're referring to, um, it, it has to do with, uh, um, I think, with the World Court and joining the World Court uh, after uh, the United States uh, Congress uh, votes against it. And he says, you know, it's a terrible thing to look over your shoulder uh, as a leader and see that nobody's following you. Right. And so he's uh, he's very sensitive to that. He knows also, by the way, he's going to have to run for reelection in uh, in a little over a year, a year and a half. And so he's very, very aware of that as well. And again, Roosevelt always has um, always has his political antenna. Um, in uh, being, uh, which are very, very finely tuned, mm -hmm. and uh, he's a, you know, he's a, he's a, he's a leader. He's also a politician. Right. We, we we have to stress to people never forget that because he's making decisions. What's good for the country and it's good for the international scene. But at the same time, he knows he's going to run for re-election, and that maybe that's. I think you were saying earlier, people like Kennedy can really help him. He's, he's very influ influential. He's got he's got a lot of money. So that's the other side of FDR that should not be forgotten. Uh, and you've touched on this just a second ago, but 1935 turns out to be a watershed year for, for the world. Uh, Italy invades Ethiopia, and France doesn't really do anything about it because they don't want to push Mussolini into Hitler's arms. And like you said a couple of minutes ago, Hitler said that Germany is reestablishing its air force. It's going to have universal military service, about one million men. So you can, and, I, and I'm not trying to make light of this, but you can burn books and you can have parades in the street with your torches. But when Germany does something like this, this is obviously on a whole different level. And America and FDR uh, have got to respond in some way. And even the American public, I think FDR is hoping, will take notice of this. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and you know, it's, it's interesting. You talked about um, Italy invading Ethiopia, you know, mm -hmm. that's actually sort of an interesting sidebar about um, Breckenridge Long, who's the ambassador at the time. Right. Long is actually sending these very um, trenchant, um, perceptive memos to Roosevelt about Italy and about Italy's uh, goals and objectives. Mm -hmm. And his, you know, his analysis is spot on. I mean, he is, re he is absolutely right about what's happening. He understands that they're doing this with sort of the, a wink and a nod from the French. Um, but what's interesting about Long is he kind of, th he doesn't think it's that bad. He actually wow. thinks, you know, Mussolini's a pretty capable guy here. Um, and, uh, he, that infuriates some of the, uh, uh, Roosevelt's advisors, again, Eleanor Roosevelt, um, as well as, uh, um, at the time his sort of top advisor who is, uh, Lewis Howe. Mm -hmm. And they, uh, they, you know, they say we got to get, we got to get, ha we got to get uh, Breckenridge Long out of there because he's, he's, he's too much of a fan of Mussolini. But you know, the, the other thing in 1935, Roosevelt again to get back to this um, issue of, uh, of, of being um, both a leader and, and politically astute. Mm -hmm. You know, Congress um, passes a neutrality act, and Roosevelt, um, which, which essentially says the United States has to remain neutral. Um, 
uh, in the face of any European conflict and European actions. Mm-hmm. And uh, FDR signs the bill, and he does so somewhat reluctantly, but he understands that that's where the American people are at the time. Uh. So he's watching this, and he's getting more and more concerned. Um, he, at a you know, at a certain point, um, talks about that the European problems are sort of more worrying than the than the domestic situation, which is an extraordinary statement yes. um, in 1935. But again, Roosevelt sees what's on the horizon here, and not only uh, you know, again, Long's writing um, uh, these memos about. Um, Mussolini, he's also saying that it looks as though there may be a, a broader European war. Um, this is also, again, coming from Dodd, who understands what's going on in Germany. And it's coming somewhat from Bullitt, who's still in the Soviet Union, but understands that um, there's trouble brewing um, elsewhere in Europe. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Right, that has to be so, I don't know, I'm just trying to picture myself for just for a second as FDR sitting behind the desk. You've got all this bad news coming in. There's not really much you can do about it. You're still trying to create jobs and make the people feel better about the economy. Um, and, and you know that you can't really talk to them about international politics because that's not what they're interested in. That doesn't, to them, put food on the table. But it's got to be a very... I don't know if it's frustrating for him or something, or he's just bemoaning the fact that another war is probably coming and his country isn't anywhere near or even desirous of trying to deal with that. No, I mean, I think that's, I think that's absolutely right. I think he is, uh, and he said, I think he's, I think he's torn at the time, to mm-hmm. be honest, you know, Roosevelt doesn't, is not anxious to get into a war either. Right. Um, but he's somebody who, whether it's with, uh, you know, whether it's with his, the people who work for him or with, you know, the larger issues of the day, right. Roosevelt's somebody who always wanted to keep his options open. And so he always, he never wanted to have his hands tied. So to, to, to you know, he signed the, Neutral, the Neutrality Act three times, always reluctantly. Right. Um, right. But he, uh, because he all, he never wanted to have his hands tied. He always wanted to have the option to, to um, you know, to, as a president, to, to make a decision. Right. And so uh, I think he's I think he's deeply frustrated and doesn't exactly know um, you know where the United States is headed in this in this sort of murky European um, impending conflict. Right. Well, every good story needs a point where the absolute bottom falls out for the for the protagonists and history obliges us here. So the 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 year of 1936. This is the year that FDR has to run for re-election, but it's to the point where many of his ambassadors in Europe, uh, for various reasons, want to get out when, when FDR needs this information more than ever. And he certainly needs these experienced hands who've been in these various countries for a while, but for whatever reason, for different reasons, uh, they want to get out when he needs them most. 
Yeah, they want to get out, and he and he also wants some of them back for the, frankly, for the reelection campaign. Uh, so he wants he wants uh, Breckenridge Long back from Italy to help with the. He thinks he's a you know a very skilled political operator. He wants him working on the campaign. Mm-hmm. You know, William Bullitt is in is in the Soviet Union. He's very he. he he arrived in the Soviet Union in 1933 with great expectations. By 1936, he hates the job. Um, he's being spied on. Uh, he doesn't have access to the top Soviet officials. They're doing nothing about reparations. Um, you know, he's not a happy guy. And he is also a very political and, as we've, as we've talked about, a very ambitious person. So he wants to come back and work in the campaign. He even thinks he might be the campaign manager. Um, as does, as does, by the way, Breckenridge Long, and neither one in the end are. Um, you know, Jesse, there's a, the ambassador to uh, France at the time, his fellow named Jesse Strauss. Um, he's actually ill, and um, so he comes back. Um, uh, William Dodd is, you know, uh, he's at a loss in, in, in Germany now. He's, uh, he's very unhappy. He uh, has made a sort of a pact with himself that he will not uh, entertain any of the top Nazi leadership and won't, att- won't attend any of their events um, so that he uh, he really has been he's uh, to some extent of his own doing. But he's been totally alienated from the Nazi leadership and the Nazi regime. So he has no access. Uh-huh. And um, and he's watching this sort of horror movie unfold before his eyes. And he wants to come home. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, even Secretary of State um, Cordell Hull, he's 65 years old. His wife is worried that he's traveling too much mm. and that he, uh, you know, he's he's getting tired and they don't have a lot of money. Uh, this is a chance for him to actually get out and perhaps make some money. He's, he's a, um, a fairly accomplished lawyer. Right. Um, so he's thinking about retiring. So, yes, there's a wholesale change that Roosevelt is, is faced with um, in the State Department. I don't think he necessarily... Um, views it as a, as a negative, right. but he's, um, um, he's faced with a, a complete changing of the guard. Yeah. You were saying earlier that you were a fan of FDR and so am I. And one of the things I like about him, and this comes across in your book is that FDR learned a long time ago, don't make a decision if you don't have to always keep your options open. So you're right. So even though 1936 sounds like a crazy year to me from what you just said, I think for FDR, he's probably looking at um, possibilities or opportunities or, or whatever word you would use, you know, you would like to use. But 1936 certainly is a, a momentous year for, for everything that's going on. You've got uh, the Germans marching into the Rhineland. You've got the the Olympics being held in Berlin, which makes Hitler uh, gives him a chance to look like a, a stable leader. Uh, things like that. You've got the Spanish Civil War that starts up. So it is getting tense for different reasons. I'm going to skip a little bit, but the second half of 1937, like you were saying earlier, the predictions of Bullet and Dobb start Dobb start coming true. Italy and Germany are coming coming closer together. Again, FDR can only do so much about that. And now it's where Joseph Kennedy is causing a little bit of friction or problems between the London government himself and FDR's White House because. I guess it would be fair to say that Kennedy is an independent thinker and actor. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And, you know, just quickly, so mm-hmm. this changing of the guard. So now Dodd has left Germany. 
He appoints uh, Roosevelt appoints uh, the former ambassador to Switzerland, Hugh, Hugh Wilson, to be the ambassador to Germany. Uh, Bullitt has come home from um, from uh, uh, Soviet Union, and in March and in October, he's made the ambassador to France. And uh, um, uh, Ambassador Bingham has left. Uh, is, is not a well man. He's left um, right. uh, the United Kingdom, and so Roosevelt needs a, a new ambassador. Um, to Britain. And uh, Kennedy really wants this job. Um, he has served loyally to, for, to uh, serve Roosevelt very, very loyally mm -hmm. as the first chairman of the, of the um, Securities and Exchange Commission. He then takes a lesser job as the uh, head of the Maritime Commission, which is um, a, you know, an important position, but it's not a cabinet position. And um, he he's friends with Roosevelt's son, and he says, you know, the job I really, really want is to be the ambassador of the court of St. James. And so um, James Roosevelt goes back to his dad and tells him that. And um, you know, what 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 young Roosevelt writes later in, in his memoirs is that he and his father had a big laugh about it. They thought it was a, uh, an absolutely ridiculous idea. But as the weeks go on, Roosevelt is reconsiders. And uh, again, um, you know, he thinks maybe it's not a bad idea to have uh, Joe Kennedy over in England because uh, mm -hmm. here's somebody who uh, um, will shake things. He's, he, President Roosevelt's not a big fan of um, of the of the Brits and not a big fan of uh, Neville Chamberlain. Um, and uh, he thinks maybe Kennedy can shake things up a little bit. So uh, he uh, after it's there's a sort of interesting uh dance going on between the two men, but eventually Roosevelt decides to appoint him. Right. Uh, yeah, I, I love that in your book, how that kind of that decision kind of evolves, because there's a lot to recommend Kennedy. And there's a lot that's not as in one, he likes to be his own person Two, FDR, if I remember from your book, really didn't give him clear cut assignments. And so uh, Kennedy was kind of able to do his own thing. And uh yeah, he starts to think that maybe Britain can't stand up to Hitler, and that's maybe not what FDR wants to hear. If I could be juvenile for a second, could you please tell us the story? Because I, I laughed out loud. My wife thought I was crazy about <laughs> when FDR brings Kennedy to the White House. He's like, yeah, I want to make you an ambassador, but there's something I need to see first. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so again, you know, there's been this dance between between Kennedy and Roosevelt. Mm -hmm. And and uh, first Roosevelt says he's going to appoint Kennedy to the to be the court of St. James. And then he says, no, I'm not going to. And he tells his son, go back and tell him I'll make him secretary of commerce. And so uh, Kennedy says, no, I don't want to be secretary of commerce. I want the court of St. James. And so and then he actually leaks it to the paper that, um, you know, Roosevelt's going to appoint him to the court of St. James. So Roosevelt is actually a little bit annoyed with Kennedy even before he's in the job. Gotcha. So he has him come to the White House um, again with his son. And um, th this is I think I say that it's the, perhaps the most bizarre job <laughs> interview in history. <laughs> uh, Joe Kennedy standing in front of him and he says, Joe, he says, Joe could you please drop your pants? And Kennedy, <laughs> Kennedy looks at him as not surprisingly as though Roosevelt has, uh, you know, gone out of his mind. And he says, excuse me, Mr. President. And, and Roosevelt says, drop your pants. And so Kennedy obliges. And so he loosens his suspenders and he lets his, his pants down. He's standing there in his boxer shorts 
And, you know, Roosevelt starts laughing. He says, Joe, he says, everything they said about you is true. You have, you are the most bow-legged man I've ever seen in my life. And you can't possibly, you know, you have to wear knee breeches at your induction ceremony, um, striped knee breeches with a, you know, and you can, there's no way that you can do that. Everybody will laugh out loud and you'll have no credibility. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, Kennedy is just dumbfounded. So he, he, <laughs> pulls oh. his pants back up and he says, well, Mr. President, is there anything we can, can we work this out? <laughs> and, you know, finally he runs out and says, well, I'll give you a couple of weeks, try to figure it out. You know, if you can find another way to do this. Um, oh. uh, but you know, they won't let you wear, this is tradition. So you, ha- you, you know, you can't go against British tradition. Uh-huh. Well, obviously Kennedy is able to work it out and he's able to wear long pants, but, um, and it's a, it's just a humiliating experience for Joe Kennedy. Right. And it's actually sort of a typical, um, you know, uh, although bizarre, um, tactic by the president who, um, wanted to show, I think wanted to show Kennedy, look, you know, um, okay, you're going to, you're going to get your ambassadorship. You know, you've put, you've caused me some trouble here, but you're going to get it. But just remember who the boss is. Ah, well, one presidents need a laugh too. And yeah, don't, don't mess with FDR because you know, he's thinking like four steps ahead. Uh, just not, not a good, yeah. So thank you for that. I, I really enjoyed that. I did not know that. So again, I was just rolling. My wife thought I'd lost all sense. Um, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit because there's some I certainly want to leave for the uh, the readers. But so September 30th, 1938 comes. The Munich Agreement is signed. Western Czechoslovakia is handed over to Hitler. And and you were kind of touching on this earlier, but clearly... the. Um, Hitler is not a peace. He's going to keep grabbing land. FDR, Kennedy, Bullet, everybody has their own reactions to this. Yeah. So, uh, you know, Bullet uh, um, thinks that this is dangerous, and he advises again, this is the time when he, at the point where he advises Roosevelt to mm-hmm. rearm the United States. Um, the United States is producing something like 100 planes a month at that point, and um, Bullet says, you've got to, um, you know, you've got to, um, we, as president, order that we produce thousands of planes every month. We're going to need a, we're going to need an air force that is um, competitive with the Germans because they are, they are building uh, their own extraordinary air force. And he said, you know, you, you're going to need a million man army. Uh, and at the at the time, you know, we had a um, we really didn't have any any standing army to speak of. I mean, um, soldiers were training training with broomsticks, and so um, um, this is a critical time um, for for the United States. Uh, Kennedy, on the other hand, thinks that. You know, look, this is again, this is happening in Europe. It's a far away from the United States. Um, Hitler's going to have his way. We need to find a way to work with him. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're going to be an economic power. He sees everything through an economic lens, and he says we can we can figure out a way to um, perhaps to uh, uh, temper um, Hitler's worst inst- instincts if we have an economic relationship with him. Mm-hmm. And. Um, you know, William Dodd at the time, he's out of, he's not in office anymore, but he is going around the country giving speeches and saying, um, Hitler is a madman and he is, he wants nothing short of world domination. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, there are a lot of different strains out there. Um, I think Roosevelt understands, um, he's much more in line with Bullitt's thinking and with Dodd's thinking. He understands how serious this is. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, to highlight that, and again, I'm going to skip a little bit more, but 
September 1st, 1939, just after Bullet tells Kennedy that Hitler does not have the guts to fight. News comes in, obviously, goes all over the world that Germany has invaded Poland. Um, I think it would be going too far to say that FDR failed. Again, he does not control Europe. But even at this point, he sees, you know, all those years of warnings that he got from his ambassadors. This event finally happens. But even at this point, many in America are like, don't get involved. We have our own problems to fix. You know, again, he feels very much as though his his hands are tied here, and um, he is uh, um, the, he is going to move ahead with with uh, um, rearming the United States and with uh, with uh, creating a, a much greater air force. But he also wants to help, you know, um, Britain, which at the time uh, again was a very, was militarily a very weak country. And, um, you know, the, the idea of Lend-Lease is something that, um, which is essentially loaning um, or giving um, surplus American military equipment to, um, to Britain and giving them financial aid is something he thinks is very, very important. I could talk for a couple more hours, but I won't do that to you. No one should spend that much time in my company. Um, uh, Ambassador McCain, I'm going to let you end this any way you want, but I do want everybody to know that we have left a lot out. And I think for me, the access that you had to personal stories, diary uh, diary entries, and and the insights that they gave you really fleshed this out for me. And and I learned a lot from this book. Uh, It comes out on November 9th on Audible as well. Um, I'm a big fan of Audible and audiobooks and while I'm walking the dog for miles. But uh, Ambassador McCain, if there's any way that you would like to end the story, please feel free. But I, again, just want to thank you for coming on the show and for this book. Whenever I can learn something new or get different perspectives on something that I've been reading since I was 12 years old, it is always appreciated. Well, Ray, thank you so much for having me. Um, honestly, it's been a great pleasure to, to talk with you today. I mean, I think the the, the one thing I, I will end on on mm-hmm. uh, on a note, sort of, I think, discussing a little bit about Roosevelt, because I think um, the ambassadors I describe um, in the book, they are in their own right all interesting people. Uh, they really are. They're fascinating individuals, um, and their um, their uh, interaction with one another is is, is really interesting <laughs> as well. We didn't really talk about that, but it's a fa- it's a very very interesting facet of this. But I think the one thing that I uh, in, sort of enjoyed most about writing it, and I know, you know, I, again, I, f- I feel as though I uh, knew a fair amount about Roosevelt, but this really helped to illuminate Roosevelt for me in, in ways that I hadn't um, really understood before. You know, this is a Roosevelt is a, an extraordinary man because he is a um, a very uh, unsentimental individual, and yet he's extraordinarily empathetic as well. He's a very idealistic man. Um, he's somebody who does believe in the in the um, in the the global vision in many ways that that President Woodrow Wilson set forth. But Roosevelt's a far more pragmatic individual. He's an enormously pragmatic individual. And as we you know as we talked about, he's a he's also a very political um, you know political animal. But he's courageous. He's courageous as hell. Yes. (laughs) And, uh, and he, uh, you know, he, um, I think was the right man at the time. So the thing that I think I most enjoyed about this was not only learning about these underappreciated ambassadors, but uh, again, learning a little bit more about, um, Franklin Roosevelt.
Absolutely. And again, for all those listeners, we left a lot out. And there, this is basically a book about almost the ground game of the 1930s as far as what FDR can do and what he can't do in dealing with all the problems. So again, uh, Ambassador McCain, thank you very much for your time, sir. Thanks so much, Ray. I really enjoyed it. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Mail checks, invoices, documents, and everything you need to keep your business running. Get rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS. And with the mobile app, you can take care of mailing on the go. Make the same no-brainer decisions as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.